This podcast episode may just be the favourite I've ever recorded across both my podcasts. It was first recorded in March 2021 with someone I really respect and admire, Chris Perry. Listen to what he has to say. Purpose, it turns out, is attention. It's about human attention. And the people that we meet and the people that I've met on my entire sort of journey through podcasting and research, the people who are successful and the people who are doing interesting things are the people who are purpose-driven. My name is Catherine Ann Byam, and I'm your host. What's your purpose, and how does it integrate with sustaining life itself? For some of us, this question is a deep ache that we spend a lifetime trying to find, perhaps shifting direction as we learn and grow from one path to another. For many of us, our children give us a clear definition. Providing for them becomes our reason for being. For others, it's about enjoying the present moment, ever so fleeting and ever so beautiful. For still others, it can be financial, status, contribution or impact. In this podcast, my guest and I will share with you tips, ideas and methods on how to build a career that integrates with who you are and the life you want to lead. We will explore the social foundation on which to build your transition and an ecological ceiling above which we need not climb so that we live not just for ourselves, but for our collective ability to thrive. Welcome to the Purpose Driven Career Podcast, Do What Matters. I'm joined today by Chris Perry, CEO of the Learning Futures Group. He's an experienced talent leader obsessed with making the future workplace better. Formerly a global VP of online learning at Oracle and chief learning officer at Microsoft, Chris's entire career has been spent working at the intersection between workplace learning and technology. He now provides advisory services to enterprise organizations and edtech vendors, including the Josh Burson Academy and the Future Workplace Academy. In 2019, Chris launched the Learning Futures Group to help organizations rethink their learning and development strategy in the face of historic workplace disruption and change. He launched Learning is the New Working, my favorite podcast, about the future of workplace learning and the people helping us get there as part of his research activities. The podcast has had over 30,000 downloads. He's also a founding director of Humentum. Chris, welcome to Where Ideas Launch. Catherine, thanks so much. I'm I'm honoured to be here. Thank you for joining me. I'm really excited to have you on the show because you don't know this, but your podcast has been a big part of my 2020 story. I attended a Learning Futures conference in London in the first week of February, I think it was, so just over a year ago. And I got hooked on many of the speakers and all of them spoke about your podcast. Oh, wow. <laughs> Which was quite remarkable. And once I started listening, I got hooked in and it started to help me reshape the entire way I crafted my business. So once the pandemic happened and I started to pivot to doing courses and programs, I started to focus in on the future of work and in some of the career work that I was doing. So you've had a big part of, of my story. Oh, wow. Well, um, uh, I'm, I'm flattered and I'm excited. Um, was the conference at the Excel Center by any yes, chance? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Before yeah, I, it was an NHS hub. <laughs> yeah, it was about a year ago. And I was thinking about this the other day. It was actually in, in February, I think, of 2020. And it was w- one of the last trips that I made. And that, that building turned out, you know, like one month later, it was a like 3,000 bed field hospital. Um, yeah. It was amazing. 
And yeah. yet the energy at that conference, we didn't know what was waiting around the corner for us. No, and I just we, remember we no s- this the last time I was with 3,000 people in one room. <laughs> it yeah. now feels like a very scary thing. It's it's quite striking to think back that it was only a year ago. Um, yeah. so, so I wanted to talk a little bit about that podcast because I find it really transformative. And I know that you have 30,000 downloads. It's called Learning is a New Working. And can you tell my listeners why you thought the statement could be true. Yeah, I think um, I, I can't remember exactly how I stumbled across that title. I wanted something that was uh, fun. But what I, what I like about it is um, there's sort of, I think it's a useful frame for two reasons. One is my work is really about how we can prepare the world for a future of work that's going to be very different, especially in the light of how we've prepared people for the world of work in the past has not been excellent. So let, let me put it that way. So how do, how do we prepare people uh, for the world of work? And, and I think learning is the new working does two things. One is it sort of tells the story of how modern work and how it looks like work is going in the future is going to be highly dependent on the ability to learn quickly and effectively. That, that's, that's always your best bet in a world of change, right? It's like the, the secret source of humanity is that we can be plastic, we can learn, we can respond, we can adapt, we can be agile. And that's particularly useful in times of change. And a lot of what I'm reading tells me that we are at this time of incredible change. So that's, that's, that's one thing. Learning is, is, is one of the ways that you'll be effective in work increasingly in the future. The second thing is that as I sort of studied this, it turns out that learning is really hard, especially when you're an adult, especially once you get past your sort of middle 20s. Um, you absolutely retain the ability to learn and brain plasticity is, is available to you through your entire life. I'm a big fan of lifelong learning, um, but it gets hard, right? It happens with no effort until you're in your mid-20s, and then it requires uh, an extraordinary amount of effort to really learn new things, new models, new processes, new behaviors, and new, new facts and, and information. And so, so I like learning is the new working from those two angles because it talks to the future of how we're gonna get by at work. And it also talks to something that I feel very strongly about and that is a new scientific approach that we need to helping people get better at being learners. Absolutely. I think that's such an important um, part of the story. Um, I would say that for myself, I have pivoted careers at least every four years, four to five years and radical pivots as well. So I probably don't necessarily agree that it gets harder, but I do agree that it gets harder to sell it (laughs) at times when when you're pivoting and changing. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about sustainable development and the goals around that. There are two goals in particular that I feel I need to talk about in this podcast as it is sustainable leaning. One is goal eight, decent work and economic growth. And the other one is goal four about quality education. Mm. And my question for you is which one do you think we are likely to struggle to get to more? Will it be a challenge around decent work and economic growth or quality education? Well, the first thing is I love the idea of, I love this frame for your podcast. I mean, to be honest with you, I wasn't super familiar with, with these um, sustainable goals, the, the United Nations set, set of goals. I, I definitely come across them, but I hadn't really studied them. 
and, and I love it. I mean, I think it's obviously a codification of the challenges we face as humanity. And that's very much in frame right now. And uh, so I like this and I like that approach to your podcast. So congratulations on, on, on doing that. A couple of things I would say. One is that studying the international aid sector, this is not my area of expertise, but it's something that I've really enjoyed studying and learning from. And I'm going to frame it up. I'll come back to your question specifically, but I want to frame it up first. I think the work of international aid is fascinating. I mean, it's loaded with, you know, sort of post-colonial uh, baggage, um, but it's $200 billion worth of activity around the world. And when you meet people who are engaged in that, you know, they're usually super people <laughs> that operate with purpose and integrity and I love being around those people. And one of the things that I learned was the whole business of international aid is essentially two things. One is it's funneling money to where it's needed. And secondly, it's finding the capability um, and capacity to get the work done, whatever it is, water projects, education projects, health projects, so on and so forth. So it's cash and it's training, right? In, in its kind of simplest form. And uh, because it operates under such a lot of constraints, uh, I really learned a lot about training, about learning, workplace learning, by studying the sector. Uh, and I really did learn a lot. And, and some key principles in my work come from, from that. For example, one principle is use what you have. In the private sector where I come from, you know, we spend staggering amounts of money. In fact, more money is spent in corporate workplace learning, the best estimates, $360 billion, than is spent in international aid. And so that, that's workplace learning investment to a very tiny fraction of the human population. And uh, it's actually not really very good. That's the dirty little secret. Um, so anyway, so, I, I, so point one is I, I study the international aid space, not as an expert, but as somebody who wants to learn from, from great work that happens there around agility and, and um, impact and so on and so forth. The twin goals of education and work, right? Really, really interesting. You know, as I read them carefully, a lot of the education one, which I think is number four, is that correct? Yes. Um, it's a lot about childhood education. That's not my area of expertise at all. I, I, I really defer uh, on that one. But it's clear, you know, if you read works like Hans Roslin's work, um, Factfulness, which is one of my favorite books, um, you know, he'll tell you the correlation between educating children and, and moving humanity and society forward is so blindingly obvious that we just need to get better at doing it. We need to spend more money doing it. And we need to be equitable in how we give people childhood education opportunities. It's, it's crystal clear, you know, kind of, I'm done. It's, I'm out of my expertise, my, my league now, but just whatever we can do to improve that seems to me like uh, absolutely um, a slam dunk. And it links to your earlier point as well about how easy it is at that age as well to assimilate. Yeah, true. I mean, that, that's absolutely true. And, and I think, you know, when you get, um, you know, when you get uneducated youth uh, in the world, bad things happen. They're easily exploited. They're, they're you know, put to, put to bad ends. Um, it's clearly not good. So, um, yeah, educating kids, educating women, educating everybody should be a massive priority 
end of story as far as I'm concerned. What can we do to make that happen? There's a really interesting story that I learned, one of my favorite episodes of the podcast, um, and it wasn't me doing the interviewing. It was a, a friend of mine called Lutz Ziob, who does a lot of work in Africa, and he found this amazing guy uh, called Rob Burnett. And Rob is a Scotsman, and he ended up in East Africa, and he's built this incredible organization. I mean, it is a model for so many things. Um, I remember the episode. <laughs> yeah, and he, he basically... You know, I think a lot about the future of work. And one of the things that I, I did when I first started this project was I went to learn how to think about the future because there are people who do that and it's not crystal ball gazing. It's a discipline and a science and there's tools and techniques you can use. And I wanted to understand them a little bit. And um, one great phrase that those people throw around a lot is... Um, is actually a science fiction writer whose name is escaping me right now. Uh, science fiction writer, and he says, the future's already here, it's just not evenly distributed. And so you, you look for futures around. And so that's kind of a little bit about what I do in the podcast. I'm looking for p possible futures, people who are doing things really, really well, people who are on the cutting edge. And Rob Burnett is one of those people, but his future is quite dystopian because he tells a story of how uh, I think it was in 2019 in, in East Africa, 1.2 million people will graduate from the education system. To your point, you know, goal number four, job well done. You know, 1.2 million people educated. So that somewhere between the age of 18 and, you know, 16 and 18, these people are educated and they're skilled and they can read and so on and so forth. And they come out of the education system and less than 5% of them get a job that you or I would recognize as a job, i.e., you know, somewhere you go religiously every week and get a paycheck at the end of the week. So these people go onto the streets and they find ways to operate. And I'm not going to tell his whole story, but he helps those people. He reaches out to those people and he gives them skills that they need to do what they do more effectively. And he calls it the hustler MBA. And he speaks in the language and cultural tropes that they understand. Um, he's built this network of 5 million people. And he started by producing a comic, like using what he had, like the simplest technologies he could get his hands on. And he's gone on to build, you know, social media really accelerated his, his practice. Um, and it's a really amazing story. So I think that's a little bit of an illustration of you know, if we get people through school, the job isn't done when they leave school. They're going to continue to need to learn. They're going to continue to get experiences. They're going to continue to need skills, many of which are, have an increasingly short shelf life. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's the kind of area of work where, where we hang out. And it's, it's interesting because I think we have had a number of overlapping challenges come upon us in 2020 um, yeah. in a way that we hadn't expected. So even, even yourself as a workplace futures person, you would have been surprised at what we were able to do in 2020 and, and how things have changed, right? So we have this sort of perfect storm um, it's and it's either actually going to be a storm or an acceleration, mm. right? Uh, I, mm. I'm not going to say which, but yeah. but history tells us that depressions and recessions are followed by opportunity and by growth. Yeah. But history never had AI, 
<laughs> um, yes. And and I think there are a lot of a lot of things that that this can challenge. So I, I probably have three parts to this question. So I'll ask you one at a time. And yeah, the first good. one is <laughs> how can we ensure that the strain on services, the climate change impact, this whole biodiversity bit, as well as the rapid advancements in AI, do not become a permanent loss in jobs for humanity? Yeah. Well, that's a huge question, I think. Um, and I, I do think that one possible future is, is that, that, that what we think of as jobs today don't exist in the future. There, there are many people who think that. There's Rob Burnett's world in East Africa where that's already true. And, you know, the idea of having one contract with one employer uh, who um, takes care of your benefits and, and salary, that is really under threat. And it's under threat from a number of different directions. And it's likely to evolve. And we know this because, of you, as you say, you look at history as a guide, right? So when I think I always like to start, and I spent six months at the beginning of this journey thinking about what are the forces at work? Like, what are the macro forces at work? And this was, of course, before 2020. And, you know, the forces at work were really kind of maybe sort of four unarguable things that would likely change the way everything happens. One, of course, was climate change and what's going on with our environment. And that's really hard, I think, for people to get their head around because it's happening in, in, in such an abstract way for many, many people. If you don't live in these extreme climate areas, you probably haven't noticed the change. But I can tell you, the oil industries notice the change. And, you know, the people who, who live on these edges and in these futures, they notice the change and you're seeing the behaviors happen. So that's one thing that um, I don't have a lot of expertise in, but clearly it's going to drive uh, a lot of shifts in population. You know, you can map out what's likely to happen as a result of climate change to, to humanity. Um, the second thing is technology. And, you know, I think you talked uh, maybe in your introduction about the fourth industrial revolution, you know, we've got, we know what happens when a radically new technology comes along. It changes how we organize our work. It also changes how we organize our society and uh, maybe even how we think about our gods. I mean, it has fundamental changes. Um, and we know that over the last 300 years, there was this kind of steady drumbeat of of changes based on really on energy, actually at the, at the heart of it, what, what energy we use to, to power the tools that we can, that we have, that we've invented in that kind of era. And so this is all well documented. In 1860, people moved from the farm and into the, into the, you know, into the workshop and then into the factory. And, and then we started to automate things through computing in the 1960s. And we had this sort of hundred year drumbeat but there's nothing that says um, 100 years is the magic number. And in fact, here we are just like 30 or 40 years after, um, uh, you know, the information age. And we've got this incredible new set of technologies that most commentators think is, you know, described as the fourth industrial revolution. That is a set of technologies that are going to change our world so fundamentally that we'll have to reorganize around pretty much everything, especially work. Um, and you, you mentioned AI. Um, you know, AI is clearly going to have a massive impact on, on the world of work. Uh, machines are going to be better 
And we know this. Machines are better at doing things than we are. That's why we build them in the first place. And thinking machines, as some people call these AI machines, are going to be able to scour much more data than we can ever consume as humans. They're going to be able to compute at a much faster rate and already can than, than, than we can as humans. And they're going to be able to organize themselves. And so this, this is a profound shift. And one of the things that really um, made me sit up and take notice around AI was somebody said, you can think about the impact that AI will have on the world in the same way as the impact that electricity had in the world. So it's not something that's just going to apply to a few niche areas and jobs and, and vertical industries. It's going to change everything, absolutely everything. And so that's kind of a lot to get your head around. Um, one of the reactions that we're seeing is this shift to thinking about our humanity. Like if we can't calculate as fast as this machine, and we can't consume data as fast as this machine, and we can't make connections and learn as a, as a cohesive unit like the machines can, what can we do? Where does our strength and where does our advantage lie? And this is what gives me a lot of hope at the moment is, you know, the answers to these questions, you know, all lie in our very humanity. And I think the interesting work that's going on today is kind of focused around that. And I can see it writ large, um, even in the world, in the corporate world where I hang out. And then let's just talk a little bit about 2020, because, you know, when I started this project, my mission was, was to disrupt the industry that I'd just spent 30 working years working in because I, I felt that we weren't moving fast enough to help all the people that needed to be helped. And I felt that, you know, our practice was out of date, 100 years old, moving people into training courses and telling them what to do and then sending them out and expecting them to do it. You know, this was the work of the early 1900s and and we hadn't really moved beyond and so I had this notion that we needed a new learning science that helped people be really effective learners based on progress that we'd made in a number of different scientific scientific disciplines and I wrote this I'm going to show you this I wrote this little book which was the the kind of me getting my thoughts together around the whole project and it was called a learning disruptors handbook and it was going to be you know like you know, like an album by The Clash, and it was going to be a call to action and to tell people how they were wasting their time. And then along came, you know, more disruption than I could have possibly imagined um, in the form of the global pandemic. And this has been, you know, the disruptive so far, you know, the most disruptive action of, of my life and, and probably my generation and probably this era. And, you know, all kinds of amazing things have happened and we're all sat here with our heads spinning, figuring out, you know, what of this is going to be permanent and, and what's going to happen afterwards? How do we, you know, how do we build back better to use one phrase or how do we, you know, get back to the new normal to use another phrase? So disruption, whereas my call to action was disrupt yourself, my thinking's evolved and my call to action is rebuild yourself and rebuild yourself thoughtfully and carefully uh, with, with technology, but with humanity at the core. So I'll give you one really simple kind of um, 
frame around this that, that I've used for many years, for 20 years, I was an evangelist for the kind of technology that you and I are using today. This was my world. I'm like, of course you can use technology to teach people to be more effective in their workplace. That was my job. And we did. We experimented with all kinds of things and we evangelized e-learning and we evangelized digital learning and we evangelized global cohort programs. And, you know, we did some really interesting experiments. The next thing you know, the evangelism job is done because people have no choice. And the only way to operate now is through this kind of technology, through, um, through digital interactions. And so the job becomes different. The job now becomes not how do we force everyone to use this, you know, kind of slightly annoying technology, um, but how do we make it more human? How do we make it better? How do we take away the tyranny of uh, Zoom fatigue? And uh, how do we find technologies that bring back serendipity and bring back um, more effective collaboration and bring back happenstance and bring back, you know, the hug, uh, so to speak. And we will, as we know, as, as, you know, this is what humans do. We build better tools and, and we will, uh, but that's the new job. Um, and we have, of course, the opportunity through this disruption to reset the agenda. Whether we'll take it or not remains to be the big question. But I think all of us have the opportunity now, especially now, right now, to think as this comes back, as the world opens up and the great work of science and vaccines um, saves us from the brink, what do we want it to be like? Let's make this a deliberate, thoughtful choice and let's right some of the wrongs that maybe happened in the past. Let's be deliberate. And so that makes this a really, really, really exciting time and one to double down and do better work. To touch on the point about technology, I mean, the technology is already there and developing even further for us to have a more intimate experience of, of, of this, right? So yeah. even, even with the screens or even the haptic suits or, you know, yeah. these types of things that are, that are coming out. So I'm sure that this will improve with technology. But I guess one of my questions remains, which is, are we accelerating at a pace that we can no longer continue in our current state? Right. So, so we can no longer continue with technology external to ourselves. And do we need to internalize technology in some form or fashion to continue to keep this pace? Mm. Or is there another shift? Mm. So I think, I mean, are you talking about sort of augmented humans and so on yes. and so forth? Um, yeah, the book Sapiens, of course, and Homo Deus, like is really a scary future model there. The, the ideas are really powerful. So computers are an extension of ourselves that they enable us to do extraordinary things. They enable you and I to chat um, across continents and um, and then share that with, with, with other people. I mean, it's extraordinary. And that is an extension of ourselves. Um, th there's also a branch of this where, you know, we change our physicality through drugs and through um, technologies of, of one sort. You know, the book Homo Deus really does a nice job of sort of playing out what that might look like. I, I did some research. It turns out that like one in four kids in North America is 
regularly using some sort of behavior modification drug. And I mean, I mean, I mean these are not recreational drugs. I mean, these ADD medicines and so on and so forth. You know, it's actually, we are starting to use pharmacology to be more effective, not just in sports, but in learning as well. And that's clearly going to be a force and an interesting one, one that I think is going to be hard for us to, it's going to take some time for us to get our head around. I would say before we, we do that, before we sort of like change our physicality, there is a lot of work that we need to do. And there's a lot of great work going on around um, what I call sort of collectively learning science, right? And there's always been, you know, there's a good, there's well-documented hundred year history of people trying to understand how learning works and pedagogical models have come out of that work. Um, but we seem to be at a point in history where a lot of progress is getting made on, on a couple of fronts. And I talk about four things. I talk about computer science. So computers will help us learn and they will help us learn not by just delivering content to us, but by actually taking off some of the burdens of learning, right? So for example, you know, you, you used to have to memorize a lot of things to be, to be good at anything. Well, you don't really need to do that anymore because computers can do that much, much better. Um, you know, you can focus up your learning time on more conceptual things. One example. So computer science is going to help us be better learners and um, we should be all over that. The, the second area is neuroscience or brain science in general. And there's a lot of subcategories of that where people are really starting to understand in a lot more detail, you know, how the brain works, how cognition works, how plasticity, brain plasticity, which is this sort of magic kind of essential attribute that humans have that is extraordinary and allows us to be so adaptable. People are really understanding that at the chemistry level and in sort of behavioral terms as well. So, that, so then, then you've got sort of behavioral science and social sciences that are really understanding one very important piece of learning, perhaps the most important piece of learning, which is motivation. Mm. How do you get people's attention? Because it turns out that once you're an adult, if you want to learn something new and you want to unlock your brain plasticity, mm. it's really hard work and you need to be highly motivated to do it, right? And I think we all know this from our own experience. Um, and so a lot of adult educators are in the business of motivation. I had a great conversation with a guy from a language learning uh, uh, company in, in Germany. It's one of my favorite episodes. And he just talks about there are 5 million people who are learning together on their platform. And what that allows them to do is to watch the behavior, like what time of day, do successful turn learners study? And what do their study patterns look like? Do they do a little bit and often? Do they do go deep? So we, we now have got these kind of laboratories, whether it's in a MOOC context or in a language learning context, where you have millions and millions of people doing learning behaviors that we can observe in different kinds of ways. I think this is going to unlock all kinds of techniques and tips and hints on how to be an effective learner. And then we've got this extraordinary work that's going on in terms of human motivation. I mean, this is, you know, you, you, you mentioned in the sort of pre-read that you sent me a little bit about the inequities of wealth distribution and what's going on with technology companies that are becoming so powerful in our world. And, you know, we'll use Facebook as, as everybody does as, as one example of that, but there are many others. Really what these 
what these companies are figuring out is how to get human attention. Um, they really, you know, we say monetizing eyeballs and monetizing clicks. And this is really all about the attention economy, right? Getting your attention on whatever they can monetize is kind of huge. And it's not, and it's happening in a very disciplined, thoughtful way. And it's using what we're learning about the brain and human motivation to, um, to make it work. And, you know, we need to co-opt that. We need to co-opt that approach to help people be more effective learners and to get people thinking about the right kind of problems. So the amazing sort of macro forces at work in our world today. And then the last thing I'll say about this is, you know, this most recent piece of work that I've done, I've done in collaboration with uh, some people uh, at Red Thread Research. And we've just done, finished this season, podcast season on the topic of purpose. And purpose, it turns out, is attention. It's about human attention. And the people that we meet and the people that I've met on my entire sort of journey through, through um, podcasting and research, the people who are successful and the people who are doing interesting things are the people who are purpose-driven. And I'm really trying to understand that. And I think um, it lies somewhere in the area of people with purpose are highly motivated. And people who are highly motivated are really effective learners. They, they know that to get the job done, they're going to have to steal ideas. They're going to have to learn what they can. Um, they're going to use what they have. They're going to be clear on what the problem is. And they just get to be very, very effective people in their domain and in their sphere. So I'm very hopeful that, that this work on purpose and the trend towards purpose-driven organizations, whether in the international aid sector or the private sector, um, is going to be helpful. It sounds as if purpose is also akin to innovation in the, in the work that you're doing. Yeah, I mean, I think um, that's interesting. I think... When, when I think about innovation, I think a lot about experimentation. And I, I, I love experimentation. It turns out that, that one, you know, one observation from the companies that I've worked with in 2020 is the ones that were very open to experimenting before the pandemic and the crisis were the ones that were able to adapt very, very quickly. Because I think experimentation is part of this mindset shift, this growth mindset idea that says be, being open to new ideas, being curious, being focused on solving the problem rather than leveraging whatever it is you have um, seems to lead to sort of greater success and more agility. So yeah, so mm -hmm. I think experimentation and innovation go hand in hand. Yeah. My final question is yeah. if you can tell our listeners a little bit about Humentum and that organization that you have founded. Yeah. So, well, just to be clear, I was on the founding board. Um, I was the board member of one of the, the component pieces. We brought three organizations together to form Humentum. Um, and it's, they're, they're a wonderful people working at Humentum um, and, and the predecessor organizations that do all the work. Um, but I got inspired to be part of, of that. Humentum is... Um, it's a member organization of 300 organizations that work in the international aid space. 
So you can think about all the big charities and uh, organizations that are doing international development. Um, and so at, at its heart, it's a sort of consortium model. Uh, there are some things to do that are hard that we can't afford to invest in. Um, and so let's, let's collaborate, let's come together and solve these problems sort of collectively. And it's focused on uh, really common fundamental problems that all these organizations have. How do we get our people well-trained? How do we build capacity in the places where we do our work? Um, how do we operate with transparency and integrity in a very highly regulated financial environment? Um, how do we advocate for sets of standards that will make um, our work more effective uh, and so on and so forth. So I love that it's collaborative. Um, I got involved because of the learning aspect um, uh, of the work they do, training and educating people, building skills standards, uh, building capacity where it's needed in the global south. It struck me that some of my experience um, with technology and learning might help. Um, but I love the work that these guys do. I love that they came together three separate organizations put their egos aside and um, you know um, were, you know form this better together organization and um, they do great work and if you have something to contribute um, projects dollars expertise um, then go check out uh, humentum.org and uh, see their work and, and they're doing good stuff and they're really poised to have even more impact Wonderful. So in closing, uh, what would you like my listeners to follow uh, about you? So is it the podcast, which I would absolutely recommend? Is there something else that you'd like them to, to download or? Yeah. So, so I, I would say go to www.learningisthenewworking.org and you can uh, listen to some of the amazing conversations that we've been able to have. And uh, more importantly, you can suggest people that we should talk to people who are doing interesting things uh, around the future of work or learning at work or in the international aid space. We really always interested in talking to people who've, who've had some sort of breakthrough or doing interesting work. So uh, please go check it out and uh, uh, I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for joining me, Chris. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, great. Thanks so much. Nice to talk to you. This episode was brought to you today by the Courageous Career Club. Have you picked up your own copy of Do What Matters, the Purpose-Driven Career Transition Guidebook? To find out how you can get your copy, as well as resources that go alongside it, visit my website, www.catherineannbyam.com, or engage with me on the socials. I'm looking forward to hearing from you.